The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning, Bethlehem. It's a joy to share God's word with you today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you prayed that those who would believe in you might be one. You purchased our unity through your death for our sins. And you have promised that that will be our experience forever as we gather around your throne in worship. Lord, would you now, by your word, accomplish your work, the unity of your church, that we might rejoice in your house. We ask in your name. Amen. What is it that unites us as a church? What is it that brings us together and binds us together in love? We, as members of Bethlehem, live all over the Twin Cities, probably 30, 45 minutes in every direction of this sanctuary. We have a variety of ethnic and cultural backgrounds represented We have different views on all manner of issues, how to think about local and national politics, how to educate our children, how to respond personally and corporately to COVID-19, and even what sports teams we should cheer for. Recent events in our city, our church, and our world have stress-tested our unity and have threatened to divide us into sub-communities based on political affiliation, social views, race, ethnicity, and other things. In fractured times like this, what is our common ground as a church and the glue that holds us together? Now we're continuing our series in the book of Acts today, The Church on the Move. And it is refreshing that this book does not gloss over the problems facing the early church. We read about persecution and partiality, embezzlement, false teaching, imprisonment, misunderstandings, conflict, famine, shipwrecks, snake bites, misunderstandings, and more. Acts shows how God's people worked through these difficulties with the Holy Spirit's help as they sought to uphold the truth of the gospel, promote love, and carry out Jesus' mission in the world. Today, as we consider Acts 15, which many have described as the central turning point in the whole book, we we face the crucial controversy facing the early church. This was the most difficult thing that they had to address. Do Gentile believers need to keep the law to be saved? Now that controversy that seemed so pressing for the early church might seem to us a matter of ancient history far removed from 
what, what presses on us today as a church. But I think that God's word clearly and compellingly addresses our question, what unites us as a church? Is it Jesus alone or is it Jesus and other things? We'll work through Acts 15 in three parts. We'll see the debate in verses 1 through 5. Then the decision of the gathered church in verses 6 through 21. And then the declaration to the Gentiles in the rest of the passage. And we see in this passage that it is Jesus alone, not Jesus and anything else, that binds the church together. The gospel of grace alone promotes true unity, love, and mission. Let's look first at the debate in verses 1 through 5 of our passage. These verses introduce the debate that prompts the first council in the early church. And to appreciate the weightiness of this controversy, look with me at the end of chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas had, had finished the first round of their missionary journeys and they had come back to the city of Antioch that had sent them out. And they reported all that God had done, all that they had seen. Look at verse 27. When they arrived in Antioch and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done for them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And now read verse 1 of chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Do you feel the tension here? There is joy. There is gladness. There is a powerful response. And now there are the rule enforcers coming in. The, the context of verse 1 of our passage is they have come up to Antioch and are saying, all you that have just responded to Jesus, here's the law. You need to keep this if you are going to live and be saved. Verse 5 says much the same thing. As they go down to Jerusalem, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it's necessary to circumcise them and to order these Gentiles to keep the law. That prompts the debate, the controversy that that guides our passage. So to understand this controversy, keep these two places in mind. You have Antioch, the place of mission, And Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life. Our passage starts in Antioch as the Gentiles have heard the gospel and believed. Antioch is the place where the Gentiles first come in mass to follow Jesus. That's that's the place that sends out Paul and Barnabas on mission to the nations. And there is joy and gladness in the Gentiles' response. And then you have Jerusalem. And that's where it all starts in the book of Acts. 
The believers gather. They receive the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 are added to the church. The apostles are teaching the Bible. They're teaching about Jesus. They're performing signs and wonders. They're overcoming obstacles. And the gospel is going forth in Jerusalem. And at the center of the city of Jerusalem, you have the temple where Jewish people have gathered to devote themselves to the Jewish law. Antioch and Jerusalem, what do these places have to do with each other? What do the values that they represent have to do with each other? That's the the question that our passage is answering. And the early church could have decided something different than they did. They could have decided, you know, we're going to let Antioch go do their own thing. They can have the law-free gospel that all the nations like, and we're going to stay conservative. We're going we're to value our tradition, and we're going to have Jesus and the law. We could have ended up with two different churches, two different trajectories, and that's not what the church decided to do. The claim of these teachers in verse 1, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved, sounds to us like heresy. And it is. Why would they come up with something like that? Well, actually, they, they would have appealed to Scripture to make that argument. And it would have sounded to many very reasonable You see, the expectation that all men in the covenant community would be circumcised was very clear in the law of Moses. And actually, it was clear all the way back in the story of Abraham. Genesis 17. God said, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male shall be circumcised. So these teachers would have said, look, our view is biblical. It goes all the way back to Abraham. We have 2,000 years of tradition on our side and lots of Bible verses. And there was provision in the Old Testament for Gentiles who weren't born in the covenant community to convert, to, to come in. But they had to be circumcised and keep the law, keep the feasts. They had to, in other words, become Jews if they would be saved. And some did. Many did not. And in those 2,000 years of tradition, there were also challenges between the Jews and the Gentiles the Jews would have seen the Gentiles as a threat. Because about 200 years before our passage, there was a Gentile tyrant that came to Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple and he ordered them not to keep the law and he said that if anybody circumcised their baby boys, 
they would be killed. And that was in the Jewish people's minds. It would have been hard to trust these Gentiles coming in based on that history. And so they said, you, it, it's, it's great that you are responding to the Lord in new ways, but you have to keep the old ways. We have protocol for these things. Here's the law. Keep it. This view sounded biblical, but it was actually dead wrong. Why? Why? With all those verses on their side, with all the tradition, why is that view wrong? And it is because God had done a new work by sending Jesus. He had, he had established a new covenant that was not like the old He had poured out the promised spirit in the last day on all flesh, not just on law keepers, on all peoples. So that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus might be saved. That's why this view is wrong, because it did not recognize the powerful work of God in the world. And our passage says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with these teachers. That means that they were hot. That means that they were arguing passionately with this view. And keep in mind who Paul was. A Hebrew of Hebrews studied with the preeminent Pharisee of his day, circumcised himself on the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin, zealous for the law until Jesus opened his eyes and captured his heart and turned him around. That's the Paul that is arguing with these Jesus and the law teachers. And so they go down from Antioch to Jerusalem to gather the church to settle this question. And the apostles are there, and the Jerusalem elders are there, and the missionaries are there. And along the way, the missionaries are sharing what God has done among the Gentiles. And did you see that? It brought great joy to the brothers. that's That's a preview of coming attractions. That same joy is going to erupt in the Antioch church as they learn the decision that it's not Jesus and the law, but it's Jesus alone that brings us together. That is a message that captures the saints and fills them with joy. So this debate over whether Gentile Christians need to keep the law sets up the rest of our passage. In verse 6, The apostles and elders gather together to consider this matter. They need to make a decision on this pressing issue. And we have Peter's testimony in verses 7 through 11, and then the missionary's testimony, and then James, the brother of Jesus, gets the last word. Look at Peter's testimony beginning in verse 7. Peter stood up and he said, God made a choice. 
he focuses on God's initiative. Look at verse 8. God, who knows the hearts, bears witness to them. Verse 7. God's plan was that the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. God made no distinction between them. That's Peter. And he argues that to say Jesus and the law would be putting God to the test. No. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Grace alone for the Jewish apostle Peter. Paul and Barnabas say much the same thing. They recount all the signs and wonders that God had done in verse 12. And then it is James that has the last word. You might expect Peter or Paul to have the last word, but it's James. And this isn't James the apostle. He was killed three chapters earlier. This is James, the brother of the Lord, one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. And he confirms the testimony that the council had heard. Look at verse 14. He says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. I love that word agree, which, which translates the, the Greek word symphomao, from which we get the word symphony. What is a symphony? It is it is variety of instruments playing in unison, in harmony. And that's really what is happening in our passage. We have the apostles and the missionaries and the elders and the prophets singing the same song. A joyful harmony that it is Jesus alone, not Jesus and the law that binds together Jews and Gentiles together. That's the joyful harmony of our passage. Now, James doesn't just say, this is my opinion. This is what I prefer. No, he says, open your Bibles. I'm going to show this to you. And that was so important because the false teachers who are saying Jesus and the law we're appealing to Scripture. But James says, let me show you where the Scriptures are taking us. And he turns to the book of Amos. Maybe the book of Amos isn't all that fresh for some of you today. But that's where, where James goes to settle this question. Amos chapter 9. He says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. That's Amos. Who was Amos? Amos was a humble shepherd in Judah 
who received a word from the Lord to go to the northern kingdom to cross the border and bring a word of judgment. And for eight and a half chapters of the book of Amos, he has judgment on the northern kingdom for their self-righteousness, their idolatry, their injustice. He says, fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel. Israel is called a sinful kingdom that the Lord is about to shake among the nations. And after these eight and a half chapters of judgment and rebuke and warning, Amos receives from the Lord a glorious picture of salvation in the last day. A glorious picture of restoration. And that's what James points to at the Jerusalem Council. Now, if you flip back and forth in your Bible between Amos 9 and Acts 15, you might say, well, the the words here look a little different. These passages seem, uh, seem like they have some discrepancies. What do we make of that? I wish we could take an hour and walk through that in detail. But I will make two comments about why I believe James faithfully interprets this prophecy. First, Amos originally wrote down the prophecy he received from God in Hebrew. And then in the centuries that followed, it was translated into Greek so that people all over could read it and understand. James's quotation largely follows this Greek translation, which makes sense because the New Testament is written in Greek, the language of the day. And that And that version really clearly expresses the hope that the nations would seek the Lord, which is the very question facing the Jerusalem council. A second reason why I think James faithfully interprets this prophecy is that he refers, if you look carefully in verse 15, he says the words of the prophets, plural. I think that's a clue that he's reading the prophecy of Amos alongside other prophecies, seeing harmony in the prophetic word, pointing to this day, God's new work. We see these sorts of prophecies like in Zechariah 8.3, and I will return to Zion. Or Zechariah 8.22, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat his favor. Amos is singing in harmony with Zechariah, with Hosea, with Isaiah, with Jeremiah, with all the prophets who are looking forward to this day. Notice in verse 16 of our passage, the word I. The The Gentiles seek the Lord, in verse 17, only because of what the Lord says that he will do, in verse 16. I will return. I will rebuild the fallen house. When does that happen? Well, I think we have a clue. If we look back at God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, he promises, I will raise up your offspring, David. I will restore his throne forever. 
his throne shall be restored forever. And that happens in the New Testament when the true son of David, Jesus, comes and he lives a perfect life and he dies and he's rising again on the third day. And then he is seated in heaven and his throne endures forever, established, unbreakable, the reign of Jesus. That's what's happened and that's why the nations are now seeking the Lord because of the new work that God has done. So this leads to the decision that's not just James's decision, but it is the church's decision in verses 19 through 21. James represents the people where he says, my judgment is that they should, we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. We shouldn't add to them the burden of the law. It is grace alone. But, in verse 20, there is still a recognition that this, this gathered church of Jews and Gentiles, that, that there are still some words of direction needed for the Gentiles for the sake of their own purity and for the sake of harmony within the church. And he says, write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. I think the, the basic idea here is that these four items were closely associated with temple practices in the ancient world. As people would go to worship false gods, they would have feasts, they would, they would commit sexual immorality, they would engage in idolatry. And the church says, don't do that anymore. Jesus alone means you need to put away those things. And notice verse 21. Here James and the church have an eye to Jewish sympathies. For, so this is expressing an explanation or reason for this, this instruction. For, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. He is read in every Sabbath. Even though they could say, well, yeah, these idols are nothing. They are not real. They are, they are false. They are, they're, they're nothing. It would be scandalous to Jewish believers if the Gentiles come into the church and, and they are adding to the potluck meat that they just got from the, the temple to Zeus. That would be offensive and, and cause other brothers and sisters to stumble. So they say, don't do that. Jesus alone and be mindful of your brothers and sisters that have consciences that are calibrated a bit differently as they have read the law of Moses for generation after generation. There is, there is purity of the gospel and sensitivity to those within the church. This is a double victory, as one commentator said, a victory of truth 
the exclusivity of the gospel and a victory of love, preserving the fellowship with sensitivity to other Christians. So after this debate and this decision, they spread the word. The message is declared to Gentile believers in verses 22 through 35. We'll move quickly through those verses. The apostles and elders wrote a letter, and they sent Paul and Barnabas with that letter, and they added to them some others, other faithful men, Judas and Silas, to spread the word about what had been decided. So this group returns to Antioch. So from Antioch to Jerusalem, back to Antioch, they bring the letter, and what happens? When they read it, verse 31, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The gathered church could have decided that Jerusalem would have nothing to do with Antioch. The Jewish church would do its own thing. The Gentile church would do its own thing. Two separate paths to following Jesus. They did not decide that because that path would have would have misunderstood God's new work, his purposes for his one people, united under the one Lord Jesus, saved by one message of grace alone, by faith alone. The church rejected the Jesus and the law approach. It rejected the you go your way, we'll go ours approach in favor of the Jesus alone approach. Recognizing that the gospel is the unifying ground and glue for this one people, saved by grace, not by the law. So we return to our opening question. What unites us as a church? What is the ground and glue of our fellowship together? We have seen in our passage clearly that it is the gospel of grace alone that brings us together and binds us together in love as one people. Let's reflect on how the gospel promotes true unity and love and also true mission as we close. The gospel of grace brings us together and keeps us together. This does not minimize Whitewash or ignore all the differences. Look around. We're different from each other. Some of us speak different languages. We have different cultural, ethnic backgrounds. We have different personalities. We have different political opinions. We have different family situations and so on. These distinctives matter and they are beautiful. But they are not ultimate. It is the gospel alone that defines our identity personally and corporately. Now today, 73,000 faithful are gathered a few blocks from here to watch a football game. That's why parking was difficult today. In many ways, these fans have very little in common. 
except their long-suffering support for the hometown team. (laughs) But this afternoon, anyone with a purple jersey on is like family. They will cheer and yell and hug each other and maybe even cry together for a few hours and then go their separate ways. And it might seem like there is more unity among Vikings fans than among Christians. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? Even though we as believers have resources for unity, our gospel bonds run deeper and longer and sweeter than any shared support for the hometown team. But our unity has been stress-tested in these last months. It was stress-tested when we couldn't meet together for months because of the pandemic. It was stress-tested when, there, when our city was on fire. It was stress-tested when people we love have left our fellowship. It has been stress-tested by various cultural movements, entrenched differences, intractable difficulties. Does Jesus' church need the gospel and something else to have unity? No. Do we need the gospel and agreement on politics? Jesus and a particular view on social justice? Jesus and agreement on masks and vaccines? Jesus and pick your issue? No. As significant as these debates seem to us in our current moment, they pale in comparison to the differences between Jews and Gentiles and the decades and centuries of hostility between these groups. The scriptures tell us that Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between these groups, that he might create in himself one new man. There's the answer. It's in Christ. Not two, but one new man. Bringing peace through his cross. That's the decision that the church made in Acts 15. Not Jesus and something else, but Jesus alone. Grace alone that would bring these disparate peoples together and bind them together and create something new, something beautiful. Grace alone. Bethlehem, see one another through these gospel lenses. Welcome one another as God has welcomed you in Christ. Second, the gospel guides our mission together. Leadership books would often speak of mission drift. When an organization begins to shift or drift away from its stated goals or mission, this can happen in churches as well. So we need to remind ourselves regularly of what our mission is and why it's worth giving our lives for 
Our mission statement is written right up there on the north wall of the sanctuary. And I hope you know it by heart. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. We have been saved by grace, not of our own merits, and we have been saved for a glorious work, a glorious purpose in this world. We have been called by God's name and saved by his grace, and we share a common purpose to spread his fame near and far so that others may receive the abundant grace that we have received and that they might rejoice in Jesus, our Savior, Lord, and treasure. Bethlehem, this is what we are united for, to magnify Jesus and carry out his mission together. Only the gospel of grace can bring us together and bind us together in love as one people committed to one glorious mission. Let's pray. Oh Lord, make it so. Help us to see one another as you see us in Christ. Help us to keep central what is central. Help us to hold with open hands our preferences and our distinctives. Lord, bind us together. Keep us together in Christ and for Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.